Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you read with me again in Matthew chapter 8 and begin reading at verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. Well, the Bible is very realistic about the condition in which we find ourselves. We find ourselves every hour and every day in a broken world that is filled with suffering. I'm sure if you have any life experience, you know how deep suffering can go in your own life. Physical suffering, emotional suffering, relationship problems that lead to suffering. You look at those whom you care about in your extended family, you look at your community, you look Uh, The world as we find it today, there is so much hardship, poverty, cruelty, sickness, injury. It is a life where suffering is all around us. And when we have some kind of spiritual understanding concerning ultimate things, eternal things, we understand that the suffering goes much deeper than just the surface. Alienation from God. Separation from our highest purpose to know and to enjoy our Creator. The Bible is realistic in this. And it points us not merely towards the condition, but also the source of it. The sin of our father Adam. Our own complicity in sin. It owes not to God our Creator, who is light and whom is no darkness at all. He created this world good and without suffering and pain. And yet it is all around us. It's no wonder that those who are sometime in the teeth of great affliction and suffering can be tempted to despair. Despair of any hope or comfort. For where can we turn in this miserable existence for some relief and help? Such was the condition of one man in the land of Capernaum, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, where the river goes into that great body of water. There was a community in the region of Israel, And there was a man, a a man who was a centurion. Children, maybe you understand the word century. Century. And what is a century? It is a period of 100 years. Well, the word centurion also refers to 100, but it's talking here about a soldier, a man who was a captain or a commander of at least 100 other soldiers. And he was in charge of his household, his 
family. And part of his household, you see, was a little boy. In our English Bible, it's translated servant because he was indeed a servant to his master. But he was also a young boy, as the word may be more accurately translated, young boy or little lad. He is perhaps what we would call today a a slave, but not in the sense of being treated cruelly or as a machine or as an animal. No, this was a loving master who treated this boy and his family as part of his own family. And this little boy was in a state of suffering. You see, suffering doesn't just happen to those who are older, but even the youngest and the most vulnerable among us, a little boy. And he's described here, lying at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. His sickness, you see, left him in great pain, like the great waves of an ocean crashing upon the shore. This poor little boy was greatly pained. And this master loved this boy as one of his own. And he was driven to seek help from a source that we may also turn today in all of our suffering and grief and sorrow. He came to the Lord Jesus Christ. For you see, if this chapter teaches us anything... It is that the Lord Jesus does not turn a cold heart or a deaf ear or a blank stare towards the suffering of this world. But entering into it in our own humanity, he has come on a mission to undo the curse of the fall and to bring healing and restoration where suffering and brokenness has resulted As our sin-bearer and mediator, these signs and tokens of his grace in these miracles, they tell us what also the Lord Jesus desires to do for us. And so I would direct us to this passage and have us consider it under the theme, A Centurion's Faith in Christ. A centurion's faith in Christ. We'll consider verses 5 to 13 under this theme. And first, let us consider in the first place the marks of his faith. The marks of his faith. Well, you see there in the Lord Jesus' case, he, he receives this message and though you wouldn't know it from this accounting, he actually receives it not from the centurion directly, but from the elders of Israel who have been sent in his place to communicate to Jesus. And Jesus, with great willingness to help, great willingness to save, he says, I will come and heal him. Jesus hears this cry of desperation and begins to move towards the place where the boy is. He begins to journey toward the centurion's home. But as Luke 
explains uh, in his accounting in Luke chapter 7, the messengers are sent to intercept Jesus. And what Jesus hears is recorded for us in our passage here, the words of the centurion in verse 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. This is most important for us to consider the words of this centurion. For what we see here are the marks and evidences of true faith. Faith is that which gives hope in the midst of suffering. Faith is that which restores and heals us and brings us into a right relation with God and removes the suffering of the curse as we cast ourselves upon the mercy of the Son of God. How vital it is for us to see how true faith is evidenced in this man's life. And one of the signs that accompanies this man's faith is the sense of his own unworthiness. He says here, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. A striking thing to consider. You see, here is a man who is a soldier of the Roman army. The Roman nation, you see, was the superpower of their day. They were elevated above every other nation in the world. They seemed to control and dominate all the civilized planet. They were the center of a great empire, the strongest and the mightiest the world has ever known. And the strength of any empire, the strength of any nation, surely is its military. Those strong men who can wield the force of a blade, a sword, a spear. Lethal, deadly force to back up the will of the state or government. To punish the enemies. To bring uh, those under their subjection and rule. And the strength of any military, you see, is the captain or the general, that which has the charisma and the strength and the wisdom in order to command other soldiers to direct their power toward the mission that they have been given. And that was this man, a commander of commanders, a warrior of warriors. And surely in that place in Uh, the land of Israel, under the occupation of this Roman military. You have someone who would have been seen as a cut above all the rest in some respect. A man of prestige, a man of honor, a man of rank. A man who surely had people answering every beck and call and command that he gave. A man who had servants to care for him. A man of wealth, power. And yet, while others may have looked up to him, he, in one important respect, looked down upon himself. However it was, this man had heard something of the Lord Jesus Christ. When 
someone who was dear to him, a precious young boy in his family was on the brink of death, as Luke records in his accounting of it. He sought help from the Lord Jesus Christ. He had heard something of him. Whether it was that he was standing there in the distance as he preached of the kingdom of God. Whether it was he had heard about his willingness to help and to heal even defiled and polluted lepers. He surely understood that here is a messenger from God. Here is one who is pure and holy and loving. He had seen a sight of God's glory in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the thing that impressed him about the glory of Christ, the great worthiness of this one that he beheld, it brought him to see himself as very unworthy. And I think this is most important for us to understand. We ought to search our own hearts and ask ourselves this question. Have we ever been impressed with a sight of our unworthiness? You see, when we draw close to Christ in his word, where we hear the word proclaimed, where we draw near to him in prayer, when even we have a single true thought of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought at exactly that point to do a check on our own hearts. How do we regard ourselves? Here is the most holy one of heaven. Here is the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, the fairest of 10,000. And how is it that we regard ourselves in those moments? Well, how have all the holy men of old regarded the Lord Jesus Christ? Consider the Lord's servant Isaiah, when he beheld the glory of the Son of God in the great vision of Isaiah 6, where his robe filled the temple and he was worshipped of angels, what is it that Isaiah said? Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I have seen the Lord's glory. How was it that John the Baptist, that great man, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, regarded it? Well, he said, I am not worthy that I should unlatch his sandals. Children, he did not see himself as worthy even to untie Jesus' shoes and take off his shoes. His confession was, he must increase, I must decrease. How was it with this man Peter, that fisherman who was called unto his ministry under the Lord Jesus Christ? There he was as a fisherman out on his boat. Jesus commands him to cast his net upon the other side. He complies at the very word of Christ. And the Lord performs a great miracle, a great testimony of his power. And the nets are breaking through the great, um, the great catch of fish that has been drawn in after all night, finding not a one. 
And what is it that he is moved to do as he restores, comes to shore? He falls down at the feet of Jesus and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. This is the way it is to have a true encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, to have his glorious person sealed unto our soul and his glory revealed unto us personally. It must have this effect upon us that the sight of our unworthiness, the sight of our moral pollution and filth, we become more and more aware of it and we are driven to this conclusion that we ultimately are not worthy to be in his presence and never could be worthy. Now maybe you get a brief sight of this when you are caught in some great sin whether someone else catches you in sin or whether the Lord pierces your conscience because he reveals that you have fallen in some, some great transgression. In those moments, then you become aware of him. And maybe in those moments, you are driven to seek the Lord's face in prayer and cry out the words of the, of the, good, of the, uh, of the prodigal son and say that, that I'm not worthy to be called your son, Father. And yet it's a, it's a sorrowful thing when those moments are fleeting. They pass us by. And so the, pro, the predominant disposition of our soul is not our unworthiness, but a sense of pride and elevation of ourselves. Now, who can say that they have faith if they don't believe in their own unworthiness? Who can say that they have faith if they have not been humbled under the sight of the most holy God and the foulness of their transgressions? I tell you that a sense of our unworthiness is not faith itself, but it is always a companion of true faith. And if we would search our own souls and see that this is lacking, that whatever we may say about ourselves or say to others, that at root and at bottom we are indeed still elevated with great and mighty thoughts of ourselves. And we have to wonder, have we ever even seen our need for the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, that is the first mark of his faith that we see, that we see there, his sense of his unworthiness. The other thing I would note here is that there is his understanding of the authority of Christ. His understanding of the authority of Christ. Verse 7, And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goeth. To another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. Astonishing. Having intercepted Jesus before, he can come into his home. And having been gripped by the sight of his own unworthiness, the fact that Jesus, in his purity of his person, in the glory of 
of his calling could not be under his roof, for that was too great an honor for him. He rather proposes this alternative, that instead of coming under his roof, he has to but speak the word. Have to but speak the word, and he, he is confident that his dear servant, his precious boy, will be healed. Striking thing, this. He has a sense of the authority of Christ, not merely over persons, but over events, over the, the very salvation or loss of life. We have here a very high view of Christ and that which certainly should accompany faith when it is well with us. Let us follow his logic for a moment. You see, he reasons from the lesser to the greater. And when you reason from a lesser example to a greater example, you're not saying that the two are exactly the same. But rather, if you understand one thing, you see that it holds more sure, more certain in the greater case. What is the, what is the first thing that he says? Well, he takes his own station as a soldier. And he says, I am under authority. He has been placed within a military. A military where there is a chain of command. And surely he knows as one under authority what it is to receive commands. And as one with a high rank as a centurion, he knows what it is to give those commands. And let me tell you, it is very different in a military context where you add the words at the end, this is not a request, this is an order. This is not a suggestion, this is an order. You see, a military could never function if orders could simply be ignored. If it, just, it was just a group of people doing whatever they would wish to do, then that is not a military that's likely to get any success and is not likely to win any conflicts. No, their life and the success of their nation and empire depends upon this, following the chain of command. And so this man understands it well. I say to this man, go, and he goes. I say to this one, come, and he comes, and my orders are followed. I don't have to question it. I don't have to doubt it. It will happen. So in the lesser case, and now he reasons unto the greater. He says, how much more sure am I that your commands will be followed? And however confused, however imperfect this man's theology, he knows, he knows much. He knows much here of the Lord Jesus Christ. His confession is true. Let us reflect upon the great authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us search our hearts and ask ourselves, has this captivated us in the way it has this centurion? Consider his authority as your creator. He is the one who spoke the worlds into being. The eternal true God 
the one who fashioned the stars, the one who laid out the orderly workings of human DNA, the one who created the harmony and the order of this vast, wide creation. He spoke it all into being. He conceived it in his infinite genius how it would all work. And he governs it. He governs it still through the working of his power of providence. Jesus is true eternal God, as true eternal God, as the one with all divine power and might. He has natural authority, authority of an infinite and perfect kind. But more than that, he has authority as mediator, authority as mediator in that which is surely most in view here. Perhaps you remember what the Lord Jesus said in his great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 2, praying unto his Father as the God-man, as the incarnate Savior. He, he prays this, and that, as thou hast given me power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. His authority as mediator, an authority which, which comprehends all humanity, all flesh, and is directed to the salvation of his people. Matthew 28, verse 18, upon his resurrection from the dead, he says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Power which was natural to him as God is now given to him as our mediator. Here we have an authority, not only over nature and over providence, but over salvation itself. Jesus, as the sin-bearer, has come to undo the curse. He has come to take the wrath of God in our place and to undo all the work of the devil. Far as the curse is found, so shall the blessing extend as he redeems humanity unto himself, his chosen ones who will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And he dispenses this salvation sovereignly and freely, speaking unto this soul or that soul to come forth out of their deadness, out of their sin, out of their enslavement to the devil and enter into his kingdom of life. He speaks with authority as mediator. And of course, we neglect not his authority as judge. Judge of history, judge of mankind, the judge of the living and the dead who shall return to make all things right. John chapter 5, verses 26 to 27. Jesus says, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Judgment. On that great day of days where all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will receive the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. Everyone will receive a just recompense of reward for every idle word spoken. And all nations will wail under the great sight of his justice and wrath 
for all transgressions, only those finding mercy and salvation through his blood will be saved from the wrath to come. And do you not see that this was not evident to all in the days of Jesus' ministry? It was hidden and veiled to a great extent the authority of Christ. In that poor carpenter's family, his brothers and sisters, adopted brothers and sisters, and half-brothers and sisters did not see that glory and that authority as it is seen by this centurion. His own disciples so often fell out of a right understanding of this and, and glimpsed only it through a glass darkly. And yet here we have a man, a centurion, a Gentile, who is able to behold something of the authority of Christ. And I would ask you, how is it with you? How is it with you as it concerns the authority of Christ? Has this gripped you? You think upon that that most striking illustration that the Lord Jesus spoke about in the final verses of his Sermon on the Mount, which we read. How there are those two houses, the one built upon the rock, and the floods come and the winds blow, and yet it holds firm. Or is the other one built upon the sand, the floods and the winds bring it down to the earth, and great is the fall of it. And what is the difference? What is the illustration and the principle being taught? Well, it is these two lives. The one that is built upon subjection unto the authority of the word of Jesus Christ. And the other built upon the shifting sands of human opinion, human ideas, your own, your families, your traditions, whatever it may be. One holds firm, the other comes to destruction. And so it is, the Lord Jesus may say to you today, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Why is it that you profess to have this view of my authority, and yet you treat salvation as though it were just something to be gained and not something which brings glory unto the one who has saved you. You see, it is a flat contradiction to the gospel to seek benefit from Christ and not yielding yourself unto him as Lord. How could it be possible that we could claim to have any true stake in the salvation of Christ, that we could claim to have appropriated his great forgiveness of sins, And then to live lives that betray that we do not care for his honor. We do not subject ourselves to his authority. We do not indeed submit to him as Lord. I tell you that this betrays a deep problem. A deep problem in your soul if the authority of Christ is not central as it was with this man. Indeed, faith itself is that which casts ourselves on the mercy of Christ. It is that which trusts in his promises. But it is always accompanied by this, a true understanding of 
Christ's authority. Well, we've seen the marks of this faith, but in the second I wish to speak of the reward given to this faith. Well, the first reward we would observe is the praise which is afforded to this faith and so commends it towards us as well. You see, Jesus says in uh, verse, or rather it's recorded here in verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled. He marveled. And surely we can say that there was something about this which especially captured the attention of Christ. And though he is the Son of God and though he knows all things, he would have us also to marvel and to look upon this faith for our specific notice. We read, and Jesus heard, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. It was this that particularly caught the Lord Jesus' attention, that this man, a Gentile, outside the covenant community, had received probably very little light, very little truth, very little instruction. But that which he had received, he had improved. He had used. He had improved by trusting in the light that he had received. It was not like many who had been raised in the nation of the Jews, how they had been instructed in the words of the prophets. They had been catechized in the details of the law. They had surely heard a great many things from the word of God, but all that they had heard and all that they had received for the greater part of them had not been improved. They left it as it was, just so much head knowledge to be contained in their minds, and it never changed their hearts. How terrifying that is. Maybe it's, you've noticed this. Maybe you've noticed what it's like in your own experience where you have someone who um, has a very uh, poorly instructed background. They don't have much knowledge of the Scriptures as perhaps we are accustomed to. They don't have a very clear understanding of doctrine. But where you speak with them, you know that they have been captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that they trust in him. You know that they live for him. I remember when I was, uh, I was in seminary, there was a man from a majority Muslim country I was studying with. And one of the things that he mentioned is that, you know, the, the difference between Christians there and here is a their very poor understanding of the Bible, very poor understanding of doctrine. But let me tell you, they are in fire for the Lord. They will witness for the Lord to their own Muslim family members, knowing that they are risking their own deaths. And they will lay down their lives for the Lord here a great abundance of knowledge, but where is the fire? Where is the zeal? Where is the improving what we have received? Oh, dear brothers and sisters, to whom much is given, much is expected. Are we improving the light that we have received? As we receive a sight of the Lord's authority, of his mercy and of his grace in the sacred scriptures, are we improving that in our own lives? 
Are we pressing on not merely to a head knowledge, but to a heart knowledge? Are we seeking to have a true encounter with the Lord and to profit from his mercy? Well, you see that he's encouraged through this commendation, but the commendation and, and praise, it also comes with this distinction between those who are saved and those who are damned. Verses 11 to 12, And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, it's a remarkable thing that some of our Baptist brothers deny that the covenant with Abraham was a covenant of grace and salvation. And yet, here you have the Lord Jesus himself speaking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the Old Testament, partaking of the kingdom of heaven, receiving blessedness and salvation in the world to come. And what he says is that, like the centurion, many will come from all the whole world under the New Testament administration of the covenant of grace. As Jesus has come and accomplished salvation through his shed blood and through the outpouring of the Spirit, he will gather people from every background, every uh, color, every language into his church. He will gather them, all of his elect people, and he assures them that they likewise will partake of the blessedness of the kingdom. They will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the marriage supper of the Lamb. They will enjoy the fellowship of being welcomed into the home of the Father. How remarkable it is that though this centurion counted himself as so unworthy that Jesus could not even come under his roof, Jesus and his love has the final word, and he says, this one will be welcomed into my home. And he will sit down around the table around the most celebrated saints of the Old Testament. But with that goes the warning that where salvation is visited upon those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in true faith, it is that lack of faith which excludes those unto the eternity of hell. It says in verse 12, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How terrible to contemplate. Those like the Jews of the Old Testament who externally partake of the benefits of the church, who externally partake of the promises of the covenant, and yet all the while lacking the one thing that is needful, that trust and faith in the mediator of the covenant of grace, Jesus Christ. All the while living with a profession of godliness and lacking the power thereof, even professing Christ and yet lacking a true acquaintance with him. 
It's terrible to consider how this fell out in the case of the Jews, you know, don't you, that in 70 AD, this nation which was once separated unto the covenant of God, it was visited with a terrible judgment for their rejection of their Messiah. And the Roman soldiers trod the city of Jerusalem underfoot and smashed the temple and the people scattered throughout the four winds of the earth. But that was but a sign of the thing which is to follow, that darkness of hell, being cast into that place of forsakenness of God's blessing, where only the gnashing of teeth, the anger and the pain and the anguish of punishment for sin resides. You see, heaven and hell are real and true realities. And today we must ask ourselves, are we those who are taking care to escape the judgment of hell? Is this the one thing above all other things that you take care to ensure that you are in Jesus Christ, not only in word, but in truth? I tell you that before you feel that darkness enveloping you and you hear the words, depart from me, you cursed. Hear the word that the Lord Jesus says right now, which is that it is faith, faith in me, which rescues from that wrath to come. Well, this reward to this man's faith was not only in the praise that was given to him, but also in the healing of his son, or rather his servant. Verse 13, And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And the servant was healed in the self-same hour. So as this man had spoken, so was it done. He said, you are able, Lord, to but speak the word, and my precious boy will be well. And so he says, Go thy way as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And as they searched it out and compared the times, they know that from the very moment Jesus spoke those words unto the centurion's messengers, from that very moment, from that very hour, this boy who was once languishing under torment and death, he then rises and is made utterly well. Are we not taught here that the blessedness of those who believe in Christ is not only for the world to come, it is also for this world at present? Through faith, this man received a great blessing for himself and for his family. And so we ought to pay attention to this and and ask ourselves if we would expect any blessing from the Lord in this life and not seek to grow in our faith. I tell you, would you desire power and strength to overcome your temptations? Look to Jesus Christ in faith. Do you yearn that you would receive refreshment and hope and and encouragement in your trials and struggles? I tell you, look to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you desire to be sure in your duty? to be caring for those who depend upon you, to be faithful in the mission and calling Jesus has given. I tell you, look to 
faith, look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would desire to bestow blessings not only in the life to come, but also in the here and now, as he assures you of his favor, as he visits you with power and grace and blessing, he will be with you. But how terrible it is where we close off our, our hearts from him and either refuse to place our faith in him utterly or either remain but weaklings in our faith. Look unto the Lord Jesus, he who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. Trust in him to the 